You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Well, good morning. Are you well? Look good? Happy to be with you this morning. I'm sorry to disappoint that it's not Travis, <laughs> but it's all good. We're, we're good. My name is John. I'm the pastor of Liturgy and Sunday Environments here at Grace Point Church Northwest. And, and Grace Point Church Northwest is a, is a part of a collective of, of churches here in Las Vegas. It currently consists of two churches, one mission, and we have one church here at Peterson. Welcome. Glad that you could be with us this morning. And there's another one in North Las Vegas. And together we live to make disciples of Jesus that live in community for the community. And if it's your first time here, I want to remind you to stop by the new here table right after the gathering for a a tumbler and a free Dutch Brothers gift card. Sound good? All right. Now, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're currently in a series, in the midst of a series entitled Advent, Already Not Yet. This word Advent is simply a Latin term that that means coming or arrival. And there's this already not yet uh, reality to this time of year. For during this season, during this time of year, you and I, we get to join Christians all over the world in taking time to focus intently on Jesus' first coming while also anticipate His second coming. And it's during this season, this already not yet time, uh, this in-between time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming that we see that God has given us joy. He's given us joy. Let's take a look at our text. I'm just going to read a couple verses, then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into this. Verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. Now, my goal this morning is to help make sense of this text, both practically and relationally, especially in regards to this concept of joy. And the reality is that this life, we're going to have trials. We're going to have troubles. We're going to face testing. So how is it possible for us not only to experience joy in this life of trials and hardships, but how can joy be a defining characteristic of our life as a follower of Jesus? So tell me, in life, in relationship, are you experiencing not simply happiness, but are you experiencing a lasting joy? A joy that no matter your circumstance, no matter your experiences, is is unaffected, unshaken. Or maybe you're like most of us. This morning you're struggling. Joy seems to be hard to grab a hold of. It's fleeting. I mean, let's just be honest, life, life is hard, right? Have you ever experienced a trial in life? Yes, I see some heads shaking. So it's not just me. That's good. It's helpful. All right. Have you ever wondered why bad things happen to good people? Have you ever thought of questions like, man, how come life is so hard? What's the point? What's this all for? And and if life is tough, if this is the way life is, how in the world am I going to get through it? Now, with those questions in mind, let's just take a moment to pray and we'll jump in. God, we, we love you and we thank you for your word. Um, joy is a, a tough topic, and God, I just pray that you would help us this morning to see what, what it means. Um, have us, help us to have a better perspective, 
I pray, Lord, that you'd soften our hearts to a greater understanding of the good news of the gospel, that you would stir our affections for Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that this morning the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. For you are my rock and you are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. This letter, James, was written by none other than Jesus' little half-brother, James, who would eventually be appointed as one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. Now, who in here has a brother or a sister, a sibling of any kind? Yeah, I do too. I have a little sister. Could you imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother, right? Like, hey, James, why can't you be perfect like your brother Jesus? What's wrong with you? Could you imagine that? And as a result, James didn't necessarily believe that Jesus was who he said he was. There's even a point that we see in the gospel when James and some of Jesus' other family members grab Jesus and call him crazy. And you would too if your brother was walking around claiming to be God. But later, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, James, he saw and he believed and he was even later persecuted for his faith. And James here is writing this letter to some very interesting group of Christians. They were poor, impoverished, blue-collar Christians who had, just, who had been oppressed by the wealthy ruling authority of the day. Now, because this was such a new and young church, many of them were brand new believers. They were young in their faith, probably very immature in their faith, and in many ways, they were shocked by how quickly life became difficult. And we see this specifically in verse 1. James chapter 1, verse 1, which says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. It's here in verse 1 that we find something specific about the audience of this letter. It's written to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now, what in the world does that mean? That's kind of weird. But it simply means that these Jesus followers, because of the opposition they were facing, because of the persecution they were experiencing, they were forced to leave their homes. They're forced to leave their communities. Everything that they know, their cities, they were forced to leave. And as a result, they were scattered. So the thought here is this. Early on, these Christians were discovering that following Jesus was maybe a little bit harder than they may have thought of beforehand. They were slapped in the face with the reality that following Jesus was going to cost them more than maybe they originally had intended. Has anybody ever been there before? Have you ever felt like that before where you come to faith in Jesus and whether it's due to our own faulty thinking or maybe some deception, but we begin to think that because we follow Jesus, because of the truth that we are God's adopted children, well, life was going to be easy. God's not going to let anything bad happen to you. And the reality is, many of us have put our faith in Christ and soon found out, soon after, that man, following Jesus, things got a little bit more difficult at work. At home, at school, things, life in general, for some reason, just became harder. And the reality is, in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a situation that's unideal, we begin to struggle with the same temptation where we think, man, life is hard. Life is difficult. Maybe God's forgotten about me. Maybe God doesn't love me as much as I thought He did. Maybe because of what's going on in my life right now, Maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe God's upset. Because I know all these other people who don't follow Jesus and their life seems to be going great. I've seen their Instagram, okay? And then I look at my own life and the wheels of my life seem to be falling off. Have you ever felt that way? I know I have. And in all of its confusion, 
in all of life's messiness and its struggles, I don't think there's a person in this room who has not struggled with their faith in some way. And that's exactly what the readers of James's letter were feeling. So what James is going to do in verse 2 and throughout this text is he's going to provide for these struggling and, and these struggling and persecuted Christians, and he's going to provide for you, and he's going to provide for me a biblical perspective concerning why trials exist and how we can have a biblical perspective of them, not looking at trials like the rest of the unbelieving world does, but as a follower of Jesus. You see, in a real way, James is a portrait of a struggle. The struggle of faith in this broken and fallen world. And how you and I can experience joy even in the midst of trials and troubles. Let's check it out. Let's look back at verse 2. The first thing James says is this. When you meet trials, count it all what? Joy. Notice first of all, he doesn't say count it all joy if you meet trials. As if there was some sort of escape clause, like we're going to get out of it. No, that's not at all what he says. He says when. In other words, you and I are going to face trials. Troubles. It's inevitable. James is not speaking of a possibility, a maybe. He's speaking about a certainty. You and I will face trials in life. You see, there's no exemption. There's no escape clause. None of us can escape it. I believe that most of us would agree that unexpected trials are actually an ordinary part of life, right? The Bible is very clear that some of the trials are the common lot of our human existence. And the reason for this is because we live in, a, in a, an imperfect world, broken by sin. We live in a world that is not the world in its perfection as God intended it to be. But we live in a world spoiled by sin. And so, as a result, we get hurt. We get sick. Bad things happen. And we die. It's just the facts of life. And yet, it's still not uncommon for people to hold out as a realistic hope that if you do the right things and say the right prayers and behave in the right way, that somehow, someway, you're going to have a special path that's going to allow you to bypass the rocky terrain, the uphill struggle that is, well, that is the human experience. Understand, this type of teaching is extremely unhelpful and extremely unbiblical. But understand that although James is speaking to a specific group of people that are experiencing a specific persecution, he's expanding the application of this experience here. And and James wants us to understand that in some way, suffering, difficulty is the universal experience of every believer. All of us, somehow, some way, will experience difficulties in this fallen world. We can't escape it. Aren't you guys glad you came to Advent Part 3? Like, resonance good? Yeah. All right, look back at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Underline, circle, write down this word various. It's really interesting. It speaks to something that's plentiful, abundant, many. Meaning that the trials that you will experience in life will not just be one and done. As if, man, if I could just get through this tough time, things are going to get easier. That's not how it works. It's inevitable. You and I are going to have all sorts of trials, a variety of trials, abundance of hard times, Merry Christmas! (laughs) Now James' main point is this. When you encounter the abundance of the trials that you're going to encounter, and when they find you, and they will, what is the perspective that you and I are to have? Well, verse 2 tells us. We're to count it as what? 
joy. It's okay, you can say it. We're to count it as joy. joy. And I prepared for this morning, I read this and I thought, what in the world? It seems silly. What in the world does this mean? What kind of person would come up to you and say, hey bro, I know that you, your life feels like it's falling apart right now. I know that life is tragic for you, but this is joyous. This perhaps could be the sweetest time in your life. Let's just receive it with joy. Like what in the world? Who says that? Who comes in the room and says, guess what guys? I have cancer and it, it's awesome. Let's just get together and sing joy to the world. Like that's not going to happen. No one says that. So when I read this, I thought, man, this seems really foolish. Until I came to understand what James was actually getting at here. See, in verse 2, it does not say, act joyous in the moment that you encounter trials, but rather he says, count it as joy. There's a huge difference here. James is not saying that when you have a bad circumstance in your life, that you're not allowed to experience the emotions that accompany that circumstance. Does that make sense? James is not dismissing the emotion of trials. He's not telling you that when trials come, you just need to force a smile and through gritted teeth say, this is awesome. That's not what James is saying here. He's not telling you that. You see, it's important to recognize that James is not saying that grief and sorrow and pain are wrong or sinful or that a Christian shouldn't experience these emotions. James is not saying, hey, when trials come, you don't need to grieve. You don't need to be broken or wounded or have sorrow. He's not dismissing these very real emotions. So what does James mean when he says count it as joy? What does it mean? He means to look at this struggle, this circumstance through a completely different lens than the unbelieving world would. It's having a biblical understanding of your hardship in such a way that it doesn't allow your mind to conclude that what you see is, is hopelessness or despair. James, having a divine understanding of, of trials and troubles and suffering, says, no, there's something that's happening here, guys, that we cannot see. There's something happening behind the scenes, and because of that, a Christian can find joy even in the midst of the worst circumstances. And it's not talking about a happiness that's fleeting, that's here today and gone tomorrow, but a joy that you can experience no matter what, because we know who God is, and we know that He is good, and we know that he's doing something in us and through us during this tough time in our life. Remember, this is being written to an audience that's being murdered because of their faith. And James is saying, you need to view this and rejoice rather than concluding that somehow God must be against you. See, there's intention here. It's foolish for us to think that, that God would be outside of our, our trials and our suffering. The reality is, Scripture doesn't allow us to to come to that conclusion because Paul makes it very clear in Acts chapter 17 that God is in careful control of the details of our experiences. God's in the middle of your trouble. And you can never have a biblical view and somehow put God outside of your struggles. God's with you even in the midst of your trouble. So it immediately begs the question, why? Why would God allow this? Why would a God who says He loves His children in a hundred plus different ways all throughout Scripture, why would He allow this? Why couldn't redemption be easier? Why do we have to go through these things that we go through? The difficulties, the disappointments, the pains, the afflictions, the suffering. Why? Well, I'm so glad that you asked that question. Let's look at verse 3. James says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says, for you know. He is speaking to those of us who understand the biblical truth that God is in control. God is sovereign. He's speaking to those of us who know that we are not in control of our life, that God is. That you and I do not write the story of our existence, God does. Friends, God is in the middle of your trial and trouble and He's using it for, you, for His purpose and for your good and, and to, to, to grow us in our faith. And this is exactly what James says in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You and I can have joy in the midst of our troubles and trials because we know that God's love for us will never change. It'll never go away. We can have joy because we know that God is using our trials to grow us in our faith, to grow us in our character, ultimately making us complete, making us lacking of nothing, making us more like Christ. Now look back at verse 3. There's another really interesting word here that you can write down or underline, but it's the word testing. It's an interesting word. You see, this word testing uh, is a word that comes from, it's a term that silversmiths would use when they would test silver. And the way they would test silver is they would put the silver in a pot and they would heat it over a fire. And as it got to a certain temperature, all the impurities would rise to the top. And the silversmith would take a spoon and he would, he would take off that first layer of all the impurities and then heat it up again. And he would do this process over and over, continually removing the impurities. And he would know that this silver was tested or he would know that this silver was pure when he would look down and be able to see his reflection in it. You see, these trials that God ordains to bring into your life are for the purposes of your refinement. See, James says that that God is testing you. He's purifying you. And it's the idea that you would persevere through the trials and troubles of this life, and through them you would become more and more and more like Christ. I don't know about you, but there's so often when I'm in the midst of a hard time that I'm not thinking about the fact that I'm being like purified or tested. I'm not thinking about that. And I don't know why, but I think many times this Christian life is falsely advertised as follow Jesus and He's going to make everything good. You're going to have all, all the things you need and you'll be happy and rich and life will be awesome. He'll take away the pain. He'll make you rich. But that's not at all what this book says. It's not at all what it says. He wants you to be a reflection of Him. That's what this book says. And it's the trials and the suffering that makes us more like Jesus. You see, what God wants to do is not necessarily make you happy, but make you holy. How many of us every day seek and search after happiness in total disregard for our holiness? Is it possible that the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of comfort, not holiness, is what's driving our decisions in life? Now James gets more specific. Look at verse 4. You guys hanging in there? You doing alright? Okay. It says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness is made up of two parts. Direction and purpose. Direction and purpose. Steadfastness is having an unchanging direction and a purpose that does not change no matter the life circumstance. Now think about this. What is the direction we're to have? Well, God has chosen you by His grace to be a part of His plan on this earth. That's good news. That's exciting. And God has chosen me to no longer live for myself, but to find joy in living for His purpose. That means practically I have a reason 
for speaking in a certain way. I have a, a reason for using and managing my money in a certain way. I have a reason for maintaining and, and conducting relationships in a certain way. I have a reason for how I use my time, how I use my energy. I have a reason for thinking certain things and desiring certain things and doing certain things. You see, the direction of my life is now filled with every practical purpose. Every word, every situation, every relationship has purpose. And so to have steadfast means, have steadfastness means that that purpose, that direction does not change no matter what you may be experiencing in this life. I don't abandon it. I continue on the same trajectory. But here's the good news. This is what I found comforting this week. You and I cannot work up that steadfastness within ourselves. It's not something that we could come to uh, on our own, but it's only by the grace of God in our life. And that grace, fortunately, does come through us through trials and testing. The principle is this. God will take you where you haven't intended to go to produce in you what you can never achieve on your own. That's grace. That's why James says you can look at this and experience joy because those trials are no longer to you a sign of God's inattentiveness or abandonment, but rather you can be confident that these trials that you're experiencing in life are God's amazing grace and never-ending love. Tell me, isn't it true that how we respond to these trials tells us a lot about what's inside of our heart? The way you respond to trials are always going to expose the true values of your heart. And I wish I could say that I always respond in my trials and troubles with just joy and, a, and an amazing response, but I don't. If I'm honest, I think there's times where I would rather be comfortable than holy. There's times where I would rather have a schedule that works than be refined. I would rather please people than live in a way that pleases God. I don't know about you, but there's times where I'm dissatisfied with God's grace, thinking that I know better, that I have a better plan for my life than He does. Now think about this. If your heart is ruled by comfort, when life gets chaotic, you're going to be mad. It's not going to be fun. If your heart is ruled by power and control, you're going to be discouraged and disappointment when your life seems to be out of control. So tell me, how is it that you respond to difficulty? And what does your response reveal about what is actually ruling your heart? Is it comfort? Is it power? Whatever. Is it possible that you have no joy in difficult situations because your agenda for your life is different than God's agenda for your life? Tell me, how important is it to you to live a life that in God's eyes is holy? Look back at verse 4. This phrase, let steadfastness have its full effect. Let steadfastness have its full effect speaks to the fact that God is calling us towards something. See, it's only when I remain in the fire and under the heat, or on the heat, under the heat probably wouldn't do anything, right? If I remain in the fire and on the heat, it's only then that I remain in those trials and life circumstances that I begin to re receive the transforming grace that is the purpose of those difficulties. Uh, a famous priest and author uh, he's Dutch, Henry Nouwen said this about the work of steadfastness in our life. He says, we fail to see the place of suffering in the broader scheme of things. We fail to see that suffering is inevitable dimension of life because we have lost perspective. We fail to see that unless one is willing to accept suffering properly, he or she is really refusing to continue in the quest for maturity. To refuse suffering is to refuse personal growth. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8, Verse 28, he says, all things 
All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Called according to His purpose. Underline that in your Bible. What does that mean? That's the next question. Well, what's His purpose? Well, He says in verse 29, God's purpose for you and I is to be conformed to the image of His Son. That we would live like Jesus. That we would look like Jesus. That we would love like Jesus. You see, trials and tribulations are meant to mature us into the likeness of Jesus so that we lack nothing in our demonstration of Jesus to the watching world. So that we might be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. When the artist Michelangelo was was asked to create the statue of David, you heard of this? I asked my wife, I said, you you people going to know who Michelangelo is? You guys know who this guy is? So when he was asked to (laughs) create this sculpture, David, someone said to him, how in the world can you take this big chunk of marble and make David out of it? You know what his response was? He said, he said this, that big chunk of marble is David. I'm just chipping away at what ought not to be. In many ways, in God's economy, trials become the divine chisel in our life that takes away what ought not to be. Both in helping us wean from our unhealthy habits and unhealthy actions and attitudes, but also weaning from our own propensity to to look to ourselves for self-sufficiency and instead cling to Christ for His sufficiency. Not for a season, not just for a time, but, but for the long haul. That's what steadfastness is. See, there will be a day, and this is good news, when you and I, if you're in Christ, will stand before God and you will lack no good thing. In heart and character, you and I will be completely and fully formed into the image of Jesus. That's good news. That's one of the things that we anticipate as we look forward to His second coming. Right? So, now, we have a perspective of trials and troubles. The next question becomes, how do I respond? John, great. Thank you. I now have a perspective of trials and troubles, but this still hurts. This is still hard. This is still miserable. What do I do with this pain that I'm walking through right now? So let's be honest. It's really hard for me to to view this as a benefit for my life. What do I do when I don't know where to turn next? When I don't know if I'm going to make it through, how do I deal with this? Well, let's look at verse 5. Because he gives us the answer. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. This word wisdom is referring to God's hard to understand ways. The plans that God, the plans of God that you and I cannot figure out. And I'm reminded of Isaiah 55, verse 8, that says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord's. In other words, God's thoughts and God's ways are higher than our thoughts and ways, so much so that without His help, we cannot understand them. Think about this. All throughout Scripture, God's wisdom runs counter to everything that we would naturally think of. How do you become strong? God says, well, first you need to become weak. How do you become rich? Well, God says that first you need to become poor and give away everything. How do you become wise? Well, first you have to become foolish. How do you become exalted? Well, God says, well, you have to be humbled. You see, God's wisdom is almost the complete opposite of everything we've ever been taught in our culture. It does not work like man's wisdom. And so we pray. We pray for it. We ask God that He would reveal this to us. We ask for wisdom. And maybe we pray something like this. God, I have no clue what's going to happen right now. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why me. I don't know why now. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. But God, 
I know something to be true about you. I know you are good. I know you are sovereign. I know you are holy. I know you are loving. I know you have me in the palm of your hands, and so God, right now I'm crying out. I don't know what to do. I need your wisdom. I need your strength to view this in a completely different way. A way that will press me further into Jesus that will allow Him to be my sufficiency. Not myself. I need you to carry me through this. So we pray. We ask God. And He says here that He will give us wisdom. However, He tells us to ask in a certain way. Look at verse 6. We're almost there, guys. We're we're doing good. Thank you for the way you're listening. Verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, does this mean that I need to come to God in complete 100% confidence and articulate perfectly what it is I need? No, I don't think that's what he's saying. Does that mean that there's no room for struggle? That there's no room for doubt? No, I don't think that's what he's saying either. What he's saying is that when you come to God, come to Him fully trusting that He is God and that He is good. That means to have uh, unwavering trust. That God is involved. He's with you. He's in, in, there's intention even in the darkest moments in life. And whatever it may be, you can cling to Him. You can trust in His wisdom. And you can know that He will carry you through. I'm reminded of this past summer when I was trying to teach my five-year-old son how to jump off of diving board. You guys ever had to do this? It, was, it wasn't much fun, but it was, it was cool. I was, but I'm reminded of that, right? This is how it played out. Lincoln was standing on the edge of the diving board, and he has a floaty around his waist and floaties on his arm. He looked much like the Michelin man or like he was about to float off. But he's standing on the edge of the diving board, and where am I? Well, I'm in the pool, and I'm saying, Lincoln, jump. Just jump. I'll catch you. Trust me. Jump. And Lincoln's knees, they start knocking out of fear, right? He's nervous. He's terrified. He's looking down at the water. He's looking at me. He's looking down at the water. And you know what was going on in him? Well, in that moment, he was double-minded. He was conflicted about what he knows to be true about dad and what he knows to be true about the concrete edges of the pool and the deep water. And that's what it means to be double-minded. I trust you, dad, but I don't like what's in front of me. I don't like these circumstances right here. He was torn. And what, what am I doing? What's dad doing? Jump. I'm your dad. I'm not going to drop you. You're not going to die on my watch. I've got you. I'll carry you. I'll hold you. You could just jump. And even still, Lincoln was torn. The reality is, as a father, I'm sitting there and I'm going to my son, if you don't jump as a dad, I cannot offer you anything because you're never going to experience the thrill of jumping until you jump. Until you jump, the best thing you're ever going to experience is sitting there on the edge of that diving board. Now, I don't know about you, but in the same way, God says in the pool of divine trials, you can't have both. You can't come with a half-trust in God and a half-trust in your circumstance. You can't be like my son on the edge of the diving board who believes his dad is good, but he also thinks that his circumstances are greater. You have to come fully trusting that your God, your Heavenly Father, is good and He will not drop you. That's what it means to have unwavering trust in the moment of trial. God is intent in, God's intent is in the darkest hours of your life, whatever it may be, you can cling to Him. You can trust Him. You can trust His wisdom and know that He'll carry you through. Now finally, we'll close here in verse 12. He gives us the result. So we have a perspective. We have our response. 
And this is the result. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And even then, just, I'm just trying to show you this, that Paul even puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present age, the present time, are not even worthy to the compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So for those of us who have surrendered our life to Jesus, there is a day coming when there will be no more suffering. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. That is our hope. That is what we cling to in the midst of our trials. Our hope is that as we persevere through difficult times, that we will receive the crown of glory which God has promised to those who love Him. That's good news, right? Yeah? I find it interesting that James would use this phrase, those who love Him, in this text. You see, those who make it through the tests are those who actually love Him. I think the point that he's making here is this. It's easy to love God if all He simply gives you is everything you want. Everything that makes you happy and makes you feel good and makes your life comfortable. But what about when he says, you know what, I know what's best for you. And through these trials, it's for your own good. And the own maturing of your, own, of your faith. And I'm going I'm to do this so that in you, I can produce Christ-like character. There's an author by the name of Verdell Davis. And she lost her husband in a tragic plane crash. After the tragedy, she penned these words. She said, God is doing a greater work in us. And that can only come as we learn to trust Him no matter how dark the days and sleepless the nights. And it's only as we have been through the darkness with Him that we know with our heads, what we know with our heads slides down into our hearts and our hearts no longer demand answers. The why becomes unimportant when I believe that God can and will redeem the pain for our good and His glory. When I put the sovereignty of God beside His unfailing love, my heart can rest. The question, church, is this. Will you still love Him? Will you still follow Him? Will you choose joy in the midst of your trials because you know that God is good? God is not satisfied. He will work and He will work. He will work in the small moments of your life all the way to the huge moments of your life to complete the transforming work of grace that He has begun in you. Wherever you're at, anchor yourself in that hope.